Good afternoon to each of you. It's wonderful to be together today and to worship the Lord. And um, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John. We'll continue our journey through this uh, wonderful book. It has just been an incredible delight to um, uh, expound. And we find ourselves in chapter 3, verses 9 to 15. That will be the section of our text today. As we begin, have you ever found your place at a, have you ever been in a place where you were just completely baffled about something? You were dumbfounded, you were stumped, something just didn't make sense, and you, you lacked the intellectual ability to grasp what is being said. And that's the way Nicodemus felt when he was told, you must be born again. He couldn't fathom it. He couldn't understand it. He couldn't come to terms with with what exactly does this mean. He's dumbfounded over the truth because he cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. He's, He's coming to terms with the fact that all of his outward obedience, all of his devotion and sincerity and prayers unto his God is utterly meaningless unless he's born again. Indeed, all of his parental privilege and being born a Jew and even being a a member of the Sanhedrin doesn't count for anything if he's not born again. To be honest, he finds himself completely baffled and undone, and that's that's kind of where we we pick up in the text. So today we're going to see with God's help the good news about Jesus Christ that if you're not yet a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. That you might be asking, along with Nicodemus, as we see in his text, where he asks the question, how can these things be? He can't understand it. He can't grasp it. So, and we're going to learn that the how we can be born again, namely, it's through the very work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the only way, unless he be lifted up like that bronze serpent in the wilderness. So come with me. I'm going to begin at verse one. Just um, some of you weren't here last week. Just to get the fuller context, we are there last time we took uh, verses one to eight, but I'm going to read one all the way to 16 for us. <clears throat> Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? He can't enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. For the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And then beginning with our text today, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? 
And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will be in him, will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we do uh, come once again in great reverence and with great joy at the privilege and opportunity that we have to hear your word. Lord, we pray that you would remove distractions. We pray that you would give the preacher clarity. We pray, O oh God, that you, your spirit would be at work amongst us, especially in those that do not yet know you. And so, Lord, we ask for your help, for apart from you, we can do nothing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So we learned last time in that text of which I just read, the earlier one, that here's Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and then one of the applications was that religious people need to be saved too, right? You may go to daily mass at a Roman Catholic church and light candles and get on your knees with the prayer and give offerings unto all the functions of the church. But if you are not born again, you are not saved. Nicodemus was devoted to the law of God. He was a, a member of the Sanhedrin, which is the, the top 70 elite Jews, right? The ruling council, as it were, the Supreme Court of the, the Jewish people. They were the highest up that you could get. But Jesus went right to the, uh, the heart of the issue. Unless you're transformed, you cannot see, you can't even perceive the kingdom of God. Here you are as a teacher. You can't even perceive that. We see a few times through this text where Jesus gives the, and the original, the, the amen, the amen. Uh, it's truly, truly, and, and most of our, our versions here. And, and so uh, really what happens to Nicodemus, and is what Leon Morris said, in one sentence he sweeps away all that Nicodemus stood for and the demands that he uh, with demands that he be remade by the power of God. We talked about the new birth is supernatural. You can't order it on Amazon. It's supernatural. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's regeneration. It's God, the Holy Spirit, in time and space, breathes life into a dead sinner, and the dead sinner becomes alive. It happens in an instant. It's something that we can beg for. It's something that we can pray for. It's something we should pray for our unsaved family members, but it's not something we can demand or necessarily choose for ourselves. It's like the wind. It's invisible. The, the, the physical wind and the, what we see, the effects of the wind, like these trees blow when we're out there for fellowship with the afternoon sea breeze. We see the effects of the wind, but we don't know exactly where it came from and where it is going. So today as we come to our text, we... we we need to understand that Christ is the only way of salvation. We say it again and again, 
It's right here, Christ alone, solo Christus, right? He's the only way of salvation. And today we're going to see that unpacked in, in really two ways. And it's not real obvious, but it's the person of Christ, who he is, who he claimed to be, his veracity, that he's come from heaven, but then the work of Christ, that he must be lifted up. And so we have the person and the work of Christ set before us today. We're going to look at it under three points. Simple points, verses 9 and 10. The teacher, and I got quotation marks in my notes, the teacher Nicodemus is unable to understand what Jesus is saying. Secondly, verses 11 to 13, Jesus declares his exclusive authority. And lastly, in 14 and 15, Jesus is the only way of salvation. So first of all, this teacher Nicodemus is unable to understand what Jesus is saying. Remember, he comes to him by night. Some would say, in the beginning of chapter 3, he came by night. Some say that, oh, it was because of fear of the other Jews. I think he just wanted to have an audience and to be able to dialogue with Jesus. And so there's, there's this dialogue. It's probably a summary. There may have, there's likely more that was said than what John records for us. But these are the key things. And so... In verse 9, he's still, when he says that, so is everyone who is born of the Spirit, is like the wind. And then he had just said, you must be born again. And verse 9 says, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? I don't get it. How can these things be? He's, as it were, dazed and confused. He's a natural man that's completely broken and now undone. And he doesn't have any ability to come to God. And, and Nicodemus is being confronted with this very truth that he's got no ability to even come to God. J.C. Ryle summarizes it like this, the great Anglican from the late 1800s. This verse shows us first what gross spiritual ignorance there may be in the mind of a great and learned person. We see the master of Israel unacquainted with the very first elements of salvation. Nicodemus is told about the new birth and at once exclaims, how can these things be? When such was the darkness of a Jewish teacher, and I would add to that, the elite Jewish teacher, what must have been the state of the Jewish people, the average Jewish person. He goes on to say, it was indeed due time for Christ to come, to bring light, to shed light. In verse 10, we see Jesus' response. He answers him and says, are you the teacher of Israel, and you do not understand these things? Jesus, it's, it's as though, oh, by the way, it's the same word that in the original that he that Nicodemus uses of Jesus in verse 2. We know that you have come from God as a teacher. And so now here's Jesus saying, are you, and it has the definite article, the teacher, the teacher par excellence, the one that should have known better here. And so the irony is that the teacher, Nicodemus, gets taught by the teacher of teachers, the Lord Jesus Christ. Nicodemus says, the teacher of Israel had knowledge, but he lacked spiritual understanding. It's as though Jesus had said that you're the reverend professor, Dr. Nicodemus, and you don't understand these things. 
This makes it abundantly clear, brethren, that the teaching of the new birth is something that was implied and referred to multiple times in the Old Testament. Jesus would not have told him this if this is only New Testament truth. We've read some of it, right? The whole idea that we have a heart of stone that needs to be taken out and given a heart of flesh, that inward transformation is absolutely necessary. These things are all over the Old Testament. And he should have known better. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, says, Both Israel and teacher are preceded by the definite article so that one might paraphrase, and this is his paraphrase, And you, that widely recognized and very prominent teacher of the high-favored people of Israel, do not actually mean to say that you are ignorant with respect to these matters, do you? (laughs) And that's what Jesus is saying. How can these things be? Nicodemus is stumped. He's perplexed. A.W. Pink observes as an application that the very fact that a preacher or a Bible teacher has graduated with honors from some reputable theological institution is no proof that the man has been taught by the Holy Spirit. You might have the paper on the wall, but you lack the Spirit on the inside. Well, first of all, we see Nicodemus unable to understand. Secondly, verses 11 to 13, we have Jesus declaring his exclusive authority, really. And Jesus has personal knowledge and bears witness. That's verse 11a. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen. Truly, truly, Jesus gives the answer of how these things can be and, and, and really what he's saying here is, is he's shifting, right? You must be born again as a little vague, but now what he's beginning to unpack is the new birth is tied to a person, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's tied to a person and the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. In verses 11 to 15, the remaining verses of the text, Jesus gives the revelation of how this can be but also the redemption and how it would take place. So you have revelation, you have redemption. Or put another way, you've got the person of Christ and his work that he would be lifted up on a Roman cross. Nicodemus, when he first came to Jesus, of course, uh, had uh, much respect, right? I mean, he's using the term, he addresses him as rabbi, he refers to him as a teacher, Uh, But he certainly did not appreciate who Jesus really was. His lack of understanding was not a failure of the intellect, but a failure to believe in the very witness of Jesus Christ as the Son of God who has come on the scene. Jesus Christ even will go on to say, but you do not accept my testimony. Um. D.A. Carson says the failure to believe was more reprehensible than the failure to understand. And we'll see that. This we know, actually back in 3.2 when Nicodemus comes to him, as far as we know, he comes alone, but he says, we know that you have come from God. You know, perhaps representing him as well as other of the Sanhedrin or other Jewish leaders, we know 
And Jesus responds with a we know here. The Lord places on him his own we know in verse 11, a knowledge that is resulting from close communion with the Father, right? He says, truly, truly. I mean, anytime you see that, pay attention, right? It's all special revelation, but when you see that, pay extra, extra attention, right? We know, or truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know. Notice he says, we speak. Well, some would say that, well, maybe the disciples were there with him. You know, we collectively speak. Maybe him and John the Baptist. Remember, we had a lot of John the Baptist earlier testifying. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I think it's more that Jesus is using the we as, well, first the Holy Trinity but also all those who truly believed his testimony, all the prophets that had come before, including John the Baptist, we speak of what we know and we testify of what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. That which we know stands uh, with that which we have seen. We know, we have seen, and, and then also we speak, but then we testify that's bearing witness um, as well. It's as though Jesus says, you are right that I was sent from God, but you won't receive the things I say. At the end of the day, it's the words of Christ, it's the demands of Christ that offends mankind. Secondly, under this head, verses 11b to 12, our knowledge is lacking in understanding. It says, you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? We should not be surprised at unbelief. We should not be surprised when you're having Christmas dinner with your unbelieving aunt and you try to share the gospel but it's just falling. There's no, there's no comprehension, or any other family member for that matter. Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. It's not that he may not understand them. He cannot. It's a word of ability. They are depraved. They are lost in sin. They're unable to believe, and John Calvin states, if men wouldn't receive Christ's testimony, it's no wonder that they don't receive ours, right? Jesus Christ is having people reject him, and so we shouldn't be surprised when that happens when we're out at our evangelism in Balboa Park. Why don't everybody just believe? We shouldn't be surprised by that. We, we, we don't want to be discouraged by the little fruit that we may see in evangelism, albeit there is indeed fruit, but our responsibility is to be faithful to the message. There's a lot of fruit, I believe, that we will learn in heaven that we just don't know about. At verse 12, it's like Jesus says, you don't even understand the very earthly things I'm saying it's, it's as though he's saying, you, don't, you haven't even received the ABCs. How can you receive the more weighty and eternal things? Jesus has stated that the entrance to the kingdom of heaven depends on the new birth. Uh, 
D.A. Carson again, if Nicodemus is stumbling over this elementary point, then what use is there going on to explain more of the details of the life of the kingdom? In other words, it's as though, Nicodemus, you don't even know what 2 plus 2 equals, and you want to take an algebra class? Let's back up and go over the basic things. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, notice he doesn't say you do not understand. It's you do not believe, okay? And how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What are the heavenly and earthly things that he's referring to? Well, some would try to say that just the very fact of being born again is a heavenly thing. I don't think that's the case. I think everything he has said up to this point is earthly things. It's best explained in context, right? And, and also from the perspective of a first century Jew. The earthly things include the teaching about the new birth, which Nicodemus should have readily received based on the prophetic writings in the Old Testament. So the things preceding this time, elementary things that take place on earth, the heavenly things include what we're getting to, verses 14 and 15, the very work of Christ, the work of the Son of Man sent from heaven uh, from, by the Father to save the world, the very kingdom of God. Hebrews 9 and verse 23, Therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves, which better sacrifices than these. Heavenly things themselves are better sacrifices than these. The spiritual nature of the kingdom, it was a wonder to Nicodemus. How can these things be? He can't grasp it. Well, in verse 13, he goes on. Jesus goes on, and and the Son of Man came from heaven. It says, no one has ascended into heaven, but he who is descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Now, that's a very, very basic, simple statement, isn't it? And so, really, the takeaway is Jesus Christ came from heaven. He's got superior knowledge. We should listen to his claims. The incarnation and the pre-existent Son of God who was in heaven before he came in the incarnation knows everything about the heavenly things and the plan of salvation. For the Holy Trinity and the covenant of redemption had planned to create a people and to elect some unto eternal life and, and to send Christ to die as a substitute for those people. Spiritual wisdom is well supplied in heaven. Proverbs 30 and verse 4 actually says in the Proverbs, Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped the waters with his garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name or his son's name? Surely you know. So what's the obvious application here? There's no man on earth that that can claim that I've ascended unto heaven and now I'm bringing back supernatural revelation, right? There's no man that can claim that. Jesus alone has descended from heaven. That was his home. So, Nicodemus, baffled, can't understand. Secondly, we saw the authority of Christ set forth in these three verses, and now 
Let's spend the rest of our time on verses 14 and 15 because they're dense. Jesus is the only way of salvation. It's a, a picture of the deliverance that Christ would bring. It's a picture of his atoning work on the cross. And what does Jesus do? Well, earlier, you remember when he talked about the water and the spirit earlier in John? That was a reference to Ezekiel 36, and he's done unpacking that. Now Jesus comes to a historical narrative from the book of Numbers. And he references Numbers 21, that account of which our brother read earlier in the service. And we'll turn to it in just a moment. He references that famous story in Numbers 21. It's a fascinating account. The lifting up of the Son of Man, it says, must take place. Look at it. As Moses lifted the serpent in the wilderness, even so, even so, in the same way, must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Let's turn back to Numbers, if you um, wouldn't mind. We're going to look at this a little bit, just to understand the context and and what's happening here. There's several nuances, really. In verses 4 and 5, we see that the people, verse 5, the people spoke against Moses, you know, grumbling and complaining is a sin that God hates. And we're going to see that God judges that sin. He sent serpents to these people. But notice they're grumbling. Um, you know, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Remember, they were slaves making bricks with less straw. And here they are delivered and rescued. And yeah, they're not having steak and lobster every night, but they're being fed, and it's apparently enough nutrition to be able to walk for miles and miles. And so, but here they are. There's an outbreak of sin in the camp. There's discontentment that has come upon the people. God had delivered them from all of that bondage, all of that slavery. He put the the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night as he led them in the wilderness but their rejection of the manna, the heavenly manna, was like spurning the very grace of God, his very provision for them. This afternoon, if you want to read a history of this, read Psalm 78. Um, it really records Israel's complaining and their lack of faithfulness to God. And in verses 10 and 11 of that psalm, it says, They did not keep the covenant of God. They refused to work in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. So the Israelites spurn the very goodness of God and his providential care for his people. And notice in the NAS, uh, ESV, really, I I don't care for that translation here, but in the NAS it's, we loathe this miserable food. That, that word is packed full of meaning. It's a deep emotional re- reaction um, of the subject and it's issuing from a demand of repulsion. It's like we, the, the food is stinking. It's, it's odious. We detest that food. We loathe that food. It's not just, I'm just kind of tired of eating the same old bread. No, they're, they're actually saying, what you're giving me, we hate and we detest. So, how does God respond? Oh, it's okay. You can have a temper tantrum. 
all right, come on, let's, let's make up. No. He sends fiery serpents among the people to judge them, and they bit the people, and many people died. So what does he do? He responds in a way that I am a holy God who set my love upon you, and you're spurning my love, and now you will have the rod of my discipline, because those whom I love, I discipline. But there was several who had died, and they realized that this was serious business. And so you have here where they come, they recognize their sin. You know, maybe grandma and grandpa and, and, and two of my children have died, and suddenly I'm still alive, and I come to Moses and say, we have sinned. It's hit me close to home. Intercede on our behalf. And the Lord instructs Moses to do a most unusual thing for the remedy. And, and, and the Lord provides a means of deliverance for his people uh, according to his plan with an image on a pole, a bronze serpent. You say, well, what is a bronze serpent? Well, the Hebrew word has the idea to, to indicate copper, and there was copper mines. So with all the previous instruction, up to Numbers 21, of you shall have no graven images, you shall not have any idols, and here, God, in a very mystery, is instructing Moses to use a, a, a bronze serpent to, to really fashion a graven image that could provoke idolatry. God tells Moses to do something that would otherwise be considered detestable, right? And consider the remedy, and this is important to grasp, the remedy to lift up uh, to, to lift up the bronze serpent is the way the very judgment had come, right? So the judgment had come by snakes biting them, and the very remedy is to look to a snake and live. And so too, and this is beautiful, the very means of deliverance of fallen humanity and sinful man would come from a man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15. Since by a man came death, and by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. Romans 8, 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it were through the flesh, God did, sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Right? And as an offering of sin, he condemned sin in the past. Now, this is, there's a clear application here for every single human Every human, because Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, every human has been bitten by the viper of sin. We are sinners by nature. We're sinners by practice. And if we stand before God without the blood of Christ covering us, our future is eternal destruction and a conscience torture in a place called hell. And so we need to come to terms with the fact that we've all been bitten by sin, and especially those that are outside of Christ, those that continue to harden their heart, those that are blind to spiritual things. They can't understand. They're too hard-hearted. They will not humble themselves. They're enslaved to all kinds of pleasures uh, that are out there. And, 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 and they live for the flesh, and they think they're happy. That's the irony upon irony, right? You know, those, they, they think they're happy. They pretend they're happy. What happens? The buzz wears off. Reality sets in. They pretend to be happy with their friends. They're miserable. And maybe some of you here, you sit here today, and, and you're prosperous. You're physically healthy. There's not a care in the world. 
And yet you don't know that you are dying. You've been bitten by the viper of sin. If you will not look to Christ, you've been bitten, you will die, and you will enter an eternal conscious torment in hell. Some are here that are self-righteous. No, you don't understand. My good far outweighs the bad. Folly, foolishness. Maybe you're confident in your own goodness. You need to look and live. Look, it says here that, that he, the, the fiery serpent set it on a standard. And it will come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. You see, there's a remedy to be provided when you have been bitten by the viper of sin, as all of us. And that's exactly what Jesus, going back to John, sets forth for us here. It says, as Moses lifted the serpent of the wilderness, right? So that's why we went back to Numbers 21 to understand the full context. As he did this, as it was a means of rescue and life, as it was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, there's only two must in this passage. It's day, D-E-I in the original Greek. It's, it's absolutely must happen. And they said it back in verse 7. Do not be amazed at you that I... And, and he, you must be born again. And now here, even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up. Moses set that brazen serpent on a standard and those who believe might look and live. And Jesus draws this quite amazing, vivid parallel between the act of Moses and the act of Jesus dying on the cross for his people. He himself, the Son of Man, must. This is one of the heavenly things. How will you understand these heavenly things? That's what he's just set before him. These, this is a heavenly thing. Just as that serpent was lifted up, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus Christ is our great sin bearer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, Galatians 3. He was lifted up on the cross by the hands of sinful men that hated him. But this was all according to the plan of God. He was lifted up. It's a theme that John will come to, I believe, three more times through this gospel, referring to the utter necessity of him being lifted up on the cross but then also there's another lifting up. It's his exaltation. It's his resurrection. It's his ascension, right? And so he, he is lifted up in that sense. And you see that more clearly through the books, book of Acts and the epistles. But even Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, wrote in that beautiful prophecy in 52.13, Behold, my servant. Remember, this is a servant songs through Isaiah there in the 40s and 50s. My servant will prosper. He will be high. He will be lifted up. He will be greatly exalted. Those three terms combined, I think, I'm going off memory, don't occur anywhere else in the Old Testament. It's like he's stacking high, lifted up, greatly exalted. That's, that's where his servant. And then Isaiah goes through and talks about all the humiliation, the death on the cross, the substitution, his burial, and then it comes back to exaltation in chapter 53 and verse 12. Well, verse 15 says, As Moses, so must, so that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. 
Every Israelite in that scene that was bitten by the poisonous snakes had the opportunity to look to the brass serpent. It was so simple. It was easy in a sense, right? So you can imagine that maybe some of the men and women, they were agonizing in pain. The, the snap of the bite and the burning sensation of the venom going through the bloodstream was at such a point to where maybe some had said, what's the point? I'm dying anyway. I can feel it. I'm feeling weak. What's the point? But the text says if he looked, he lived. And quite frankly, the, the remedy is extremely humbling. Some might complain that it's just too easy. It's just not going to work. It's like, come on, how's that going to do anything? They seem to think that they have to do some great work. Even in, in our context today, it's salvation is simply look, believe, and trust. You don't have to go and knock on doors. You don't have to do some great work. You don't have to volunteer for 20 hours a week for the rest of your life and hope that you make it in. It's so easy. Look and live. The promise is that all who believe receive eternal life. That's a beautiful promise. And it's only made possible because Christ's death is of infinite value. God provides endless supply of supernatural saving grace for his people. There's no reason to think that the anti-venom of Christ's righteousness being applied to my state, my, my, to me, might run out someday. It's an endless supply for all who will believe. Picture that scene in the book of Numbers. Some of the Israelites perhaps could barely breathe from the venom and, and nearly at the end of their life. And with the last bit of strength, they looked to the bronze serpent and were healed. Jesus says, Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. This is the first occurrence of 16 through the Gospel of John. John, as you know, will refer to this again and again and again. Even in 1 John, it occurs six times. So to think that somehow you could be in Christ, that you believe and that you're saved and can lose your salvation is folly. Listen to Charles Spurgeon. But God must deify himself and cease to be true before he can damn one sinner who has believed in Christ. God would not be God, right? He would not be, have an effectual salvation. This life is ageless and endless, uh, beginning now and lasting forever. It, it's more than endless. It, it's, it's sharing the life of God in Christ. When you believe and when you come to Christ, you're already experiencing eternal life because you understand eternal things and you know your destiny and you can see with spiritual eyes. To say it another way, the remedy is 100% effectual for all who looked. And so too for you, if you will look to Christ and trust in Him, He will save you. Three brief points of application. What is your response to Jesus? Why will you die if you can look and live? Those of you who are outside of Christ. Though Christ was lifted up before all, he does not save all people. It's only those who will humble themselves, repent of their sins. It's only those who believe and come to Jesus Christ and, and truly cast all of their care and hope upon him and trusting in him. 
If you, you might say, well I, well, I can't believe. Well, cry out to God. Oh, Lord, help me to believe and embrace your dear son. Or even as the man said, help my unbelief. He says, I believe, but help my unbelief. And if you might be in that situation. Nicodemus himself cried out. He couldn't understand. How can these things be? But we know that God opened up his heart. He became a disciple. We see it in chapter 7. We'll see it in chapter 19. He's there at the tomb bringing 100 pounds with the bur- for the burial of Christ. Secondly, Christians, you need to keep looking to Christ and lifting him up. Lifting him up in your own hearts. Lifting him up in the community and this culture magnifying Christ. And we need to be encouraged, even at this church. The gospel seed we cast out today may yet yield abundant fruit tomorrow or in the coming days or years. J.I. Packer said the measure of love is how much it gives. The measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son to be made man and to die for sins so as to become the one mediator who can bring us to God. And thirdly, lastly, have you... Is there venom running through your veins now? You've been bitten by a snake. You are born a sinner. And if you feel like you're dying apart from Christ, look to Christ. Maybe you're here today and you say, well, those were interesting truths. I think I'm going to ponder those. Maybe around the New Year, New Year's resolution time, I'll think about changing something. Wake up! You've been bitten! You don't have any guarantee that you're going to live another 25 days to New Year's. You've been bitten with the poison of sin, and you are perishing and you can't heal yourself. There's no antidote that you can go apart from Christ at Walgreens or CVS for this venom. It's only looking to Jesus Christ. Peter says, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold, but with precious blood the blood of an unblemished and spotless lamb, the blood of Christ. The key is to confess your sins and to turn from it, to look and to live. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word and thank you for the simplicity of the gospel of John, but also its complexities and even the lesson that we learned today. Lord, I pray that you would have dealings in each of our hearts those that are in Christ to have a greater appreciation and thanksgiving that we have been rescued, that we've been delivered, and that our salvation is secure, and that if anyone's outside of Christ, or that today may be the day of salvation, that they would taste and see, indeed, that the Lord is good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. What great reminders as we are about to have our communion. We are reminded about how we were.